Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Osiris. And we are live. Hello and happy Monday, February 13th. Sorry to all of you out there in Philadelphia and the surrounding area. You had a chance to win the Super Bowl. You had a chance, a legitimate chance, up by 10 points going into the second half. And then defense can't stop anyone. Your quarterback fumbles away a touchdown. Just an unbelievable collapse. A very, very Philadelphia game last night. Congratulations as well to Kansas City, especially all the fans who refrain from the chop chant. All right. We're looking at all five of you. We um, are. Is, is that why RJ's not here? Is he upset? I know. <laughs> exactly. You know, a testament to RJ is I've seen him bounce back from the depths of sports sorrow to talking about fish, being a good parent, having beers with friends, 
working, doing whatever in like record time. Like he is, he gets really sad whenever Ohio State loses a big game, like really sad. And within five minutes, he's back to being RJ. So I don't think that his adopted city is affecting him this much, but it's a good guess. We are without RJ. We're trying to man the ship by ourselves. This is the first podcast I've hosted in, I don't even know how long. So hopefully we're already off the rails 90 seconds in. We are the, <laughs> we are the, <laughs> friendly podcast here in fish's 40th anniversary year to bring you 40 fish shows for 40 years of fish and in this episode we are parking ourselves right in summer of 1988 george w bush was about to redefine political campaigning with one of the raciest and most inappropriate political ads of all time to be fair, Michael Dukakis never should have been a presidential nominee, but that's a different story for a different podcast. Very different podcast. Very yeah, different really podcast. Different. We'll get into that set two when we have a few critiques. Um, we are here to talk about Fish's performance from July 23rd, 1988, Pete's Fabulous Fish Fest in Underhill, Vermont. My name is Brian Brinkman. I'm here with Megan and Jonathan. How are you guys doing today? Not bad. I'm great. For Not bad. Great. Not bad and great. Yeah, I'm great. It's a good Monday. It's a good day. We are talking about a formative fish show in more ways than one. We're talking about a fish show with some really incredible jamming. We're talking about a fish show with an incredibly important debut. That's something we tend to be covering here is we're tracking the band on an annual basis throughout their entire career. It's good to fish show. There's a lot to discuss. There's a lot to dive into. Is there anything we need to talk about business-wise before we get into what was happening in the world and in the world of fish in July 1988? I mean, I do want to tell people to subscribe to our premium episodes because being a premium member of Osiris gives you access to all of the bonus episodes we've been recording, and they've been awesome. They've been so good. Plus ad-free regular mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah. And I've been – I was at a show last Thursday here in Brooklyn. I went to see the Headhunters, Herbie Hancock's band. And we had been talking about Herbie Hancock on one of our bonus episodes. Did we talk about the one time I saw the Headhunters? No, we episode? didn't. No, no. When I think we have to dedicate a new bonus episode to seeing the Headhunters and what that experience was like. I saw Herbie a couple of years ago, and it was an amazing show. I can attest. I can to all this. guarantee my it experience was, so was very amazing. different from yours. Oh, really? Why? Go on. You just yeah, invited yourself to tell. go on to that. Well, the show ended early. They were playing oh. Watermelon Man, and someone got struck by lightning inside the stadium. What? That is very different. Yeah, it's very different. That is crazy. Yeah, it was awesome. You no. Know, Mine was like an underattended show at Brooklyn Bowl, but the people that were there were, they fucking got it. You know, they were so into it. And to hear this music that I listened to so much in college, like every single hippie party that I went to in college, people would play like the Grateful Dead Fish and then Herbie Hancock Headhunters. That was just like always. And so to hear that like live was just awesome. And they started to play uh, Watermelon Man on a beer bottle. And it was just it was so cool and everybody was freaking out and just to hear that and chameleon and, and all just to see these incredible musicians. There was just, it was incredible. It was really awesome. I highly recommend. His drummer is the, is the single handedly the best drummer I've ever seen live in person. I, I did not know a human body could do those sorts of things. I just kind of figured that you press a button and it digitized all that stuff for you. And the fact that people are still playing in the crazy time signatures, the speed, the like stops, how, how tight he was. I mean, it was just mind blowing. Um, I saw him with Kamasi Washington back in 2019 at the Mission Ballroom, and it was nice. All older people, all sitting down the entire show, but somehow it felt like a jam band show. It was great. That's you awesome. Know, when you say a drummer does anything single handedly, it brings to mind Def Leppard. <laughs> Which seems like you were jumping a little bit ahead when you said that. So, uh, Segway magic. Just that magic, is, Jonathan. That maybe, is a magic. Maybe you segue. should talk to us a, a little bit about 1988. Put us in some context, Brian. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, diving into 
the initial segment of our show, I want to tell you about what was going on in the world around sometime around July 23rd, 1988. Top five songs on the radio. Richard Marx's Hold On To The Nights, Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me, In Excess, New Sensation, Steve Winwood, Roll With It, and Cheap Trick, The Flame. You guys both reacted to Pour Some Sugar On Me. The first memory that comes to mind with this song, Jonathan. Uh, I don't have any specific memories. It was kind of ubiquitous throughout, you know, for like months, it seems. It was just everywhere. Um, really hoping that your answer is going to be body shots, but we'll move on. Mike, what is your <laughs> one memory? Never have I ever. Uh, I wish I could say the same. Um, I, My memory is dancing in my Wonder Woman underwear to pour some sugar on me when I was 10 years old. That is a memory. With tinfoil nice. on my wrists. Oh, my God. Because, you know, she had like the... A Wonder Woman, yeah. I was a big Amazing. Wonder Woman fan. <laughs> my... Uh, my favorite song in the summer of 1988 was John Cougar Mellencamp's Cherry Bomb, which I've learned I mean, great is great song. Probably not super appropriate for a three-year-old to be <laughs> yeah. singing all the words to, but uh, I, I dug it. It still kind of slaps. The video is like imprinted on my brain. So I was watching a, a lot of not a Runaways cover, is it? <laughs> I was I was I was watching a lot of MTV because my parents just had it on an endless loop. Rattle and Hum was being played. This was the year mm-hmm. I saw my first movie in the theaters. My dad took me to see uh, Rattle and Hum, uh, U2's 1987 88 concert documentary. What were you guys doing aside from dancing around your underwear to pour some sugar on me in 1988? <laughs> Middle school. I think that's definitely think the that's face you right. make when you were in middle school and you're yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Let's see. Uh, playing the flute. Mm. Um, I love that. I didn't know that. It's really interesting. I didn't rock know that. music, like really mm. getting into like, like classic rock music. Well, you were 14 uh, at this point. I turned 14 in 1988. So yeah, so this is like when you're getting, all the important records. Oh yeah. Like the foundational classic mm-hmm. rock records for the first time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't think I had started smoking pot yet, but I was about to. <laughs> the point in life um, where you're like, you know, you're curious, but you're also coming. Oh, I was, you just haven't gotten there yet. I was curious you're about to step through that door. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was good times. We were, just exploring, uh, you know, a whole new world of all this like old music and drug bands and Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd and all this stuff. It was just, you know, it was just a couple years away from my first Dead show somehow. My parents Did you have had any this... older siblings, Jonathan. Sorry, Brian. Yeah, but my brother's favorite band was and is Huey Lewis and the News. So <laughs> stops right there. I was a big fan of them too. <laughs> But also, so he wasn't you know, like your influence musically. Yeah, I mean, a little like I, you know, Guns and Roses and stuff, you know, stuff. But I was watching MTV endlessly, just like Brian, and so it was not exactly, uh, you know, I didn't need him to turn me yeah. on to that kind of stuff. I was, I was already, I was getting it straight from the media into right into my veins. So it's an interesting point that you make there about it because like 10 years earlier you would need either the older brother you need to spend a lot of time at a record Mm -hmm. uh, a record shop or you need to like find that radio station that really gets you all the classic rock hits but having mtv you could just have it on and it's just telling you these are the bands to listen to and it was still a point where they were playing a lot of at that point older music but they were playing rock music both newer bands and bands that were legacy artists basically by that point in time it was a really good mix um meg who were you in 1988 I was a fourth grader and I was doing a lot of tap dancing, a lot of mm. gymnastics. Mm. Yep. A lot of singing, you know, summer 88 out. Olympics, like the gymnastics. Did that hit you hard at this oh, point? Oh yeah. I was super into the Olympics and the winter Olympics. I guess that was, was that the next year or two years later? It was still at the point where they did winter and summer the same year. 
Yes, yeah. because that was in fifth grade. And I remember, I guess we can talk about that next year, but I had a lot of a little controversy with the Winter Olympics in my fifth grade mm. classroom. So mm. I guess we'll have to save that. that or was is, it 1988 uh, too in winter? It was probably early winter 88 and then summer yeah. 88. Oh, okay. Well, then I can tell the story. It's not, it's not very it. long. But yeah, I was a chatterbox and always talking in class and I was getting in trouble. And so my teacher put like these boards around my desk, like made like a little like kind of partition like a cubicle basically I was isolated and so I was like well just decorate it and so I decorated it for like the winter olympics like I cut things out of like the magazines and like decorated it and then everybody was mad and wanted one and so everybody started talking all the time to try to get a cubicle (laughs) and it backfired (laughs) so you know that's what you get if you try to like section off kids I relate incredibly well to that uh, experience in fourth grade. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's uh, that, that was, that was what I experienced a lot as well in, 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 uh, in elementary school. Um, so moving on in pop culture here, top movie at this point in time, can anyone guess summer 88, what the top movie was? No. Can't recall. Who framed Roger Rabbit? <gasps> I saw that. that in such the a big deal. This replaced. I remember seeing that in the theater too. This is this is like a sign of just where movies were in the late 1980s that we just aren't right now. I tried to go see a movie this weekend and I was just like, I don't want to see anything in the theaters right now. I, I don't know. want to see any of this shit. Um, this replaced Coming to America. Oh my and God. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was replaced by the Tom Cruise classic Cocktail. Didn't Absolutely incredible movie. Incredible. I've ever seen that movie. Oh, oh, I have, cannot yeah. recommend it enough. It is yeah, that's a, a great movie. It's great, Tom Cruise. It's great. That's like, when he's like the movie. bartender, right? His bartender, on and like beach. his whole life unveils from there. I mean, it's. It, I mean, it reminds me of Risky Business in the way of like it's a movie that you just couldn't make today. It's such a small story, but like Tom Cruise carries it entirely. It's really, really good stuff, and it just blows up. Um, top five TV shows. This is man, a blast from the past. This is when I started watching TV. Uh, the Wonder Years. Which is my favorite show as a kid. That's number one. I loved that show. Roseanne. Uh, oh yeah. Red Dwarf, which I'm not familiar with. Jonathan, love that show. I, I, don't I know knew what that it. Is. I knew it. What is it? <laughs> Tell us about Red Dwarf. UK science fiction program comedy. It's weird. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. old. <laughs> uh, no. Mystery Science Theater 3000, which my dad would let me watch. Uh, even when I didn't get any of the jokes, but I thought it was great. I really liked the sarcasm. I liked the fact that you could just be a critic immediately in the moment. It really connected with me and has had a massive <laughs> impact on who I am. I can uh, see that. Garfield and Friends as well, it. which I didn't get. Mystery Science Theory 3000 is great. It's probably very dated and very inappropriate at this point in time, but uh, I loved <laughs> right. it in the moment. Still good. I was a huge Still Garfield good. fan. I think my birthday party that year was Garfield themed. Not Wonder Woman? Like I had Garfield plates. No. There's a phenomenal skit sketch from, a, I think it's season one of I Think You Should Leave, about a woman who buys the Garfield house that I recommend to you all and to our audience because it's hilarious. Um, all right. Let's jump into the show. Before we do that, ha, ha, ha. Meg, can you tell us where Fish was at in 1988 leading up to the show? Yeah, it's time for Meg's Corner. So this year in 1988, they're going to have 97 shows. So that is, again, almost doubling 1987. They doubled the year before that. So they're continuing this trend of like doubling the amount of shows they play every year, which is pretty incredible. This is the year the band members become full-time musicians. They quit any other jobs they have going on, and they're just completely dedicated to music. We've got the front opening in Burlington which is a bigger venue than Nectar's. So it's going to be another place that they're playing in addition to their residency in Nectar's. And they're also continuing to play lots of colleges and starting to stretch out into other parts of New England too. On March 12th, we have the first known performance of Gamehenge. Pretty big deal. Huge moment. Huge moment because also that night, there's someone really important in the audience. And it's John Paluska. And he's going to see them for the first time and recognize what they have going on not just musically, but recognize the relationship between the audience and the band. And that is going to be what kind of like really hooks them. And he hires them to play at Amherst, first paying gig outside of Vermont. And then Ben Hunter is also going to see them. 
and bring him to Boston to play. And they're going to, you know, go on and take over their management and the business side of fish, which is just huge, big deal. Sadly, Frank Zappa did not come to the gig that night. No, he did not, but he was involved somehow, <laughs> or so we think. Well, but, he played that night in town. And mm-hmm. Theoretically, the band went to see him first. Yes. That's but what they say, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so much happened on that night. It's a big deal. Huge, huge night fish history. Night. If everything happened huge the night. way that it seems to have happened, it yeah. like is the convergence of everything fish in one moment. It's you so know, weird. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. But I think even more important, or just as important, I should say, happened in 1988 on July 26th at 2 a.m. outside of Nectar's when the band decides to drive straight overnight for two days or whatever to Colorado and take a risk and play for a shady club owner who is going to be boycotted for not paying staff and musicians. And they're going to play seven gigs in Colorado. And even though there's only one that people really go to, I think it really motivated the band and helped realize that they could play their music outside of New England and build a fan base by touring. So big, big, important Colorado, which everybody knows about gigs, but important to think about. And then we have 29 debuts this year. And some of the originals are Foam, Esther, Poor Heart, Contact, Tila, Colonel Forbin's Mockingbird, The Curtain, Lizards, and important for us today, Week of Pog and No Dogs Allowed, because they're both debuting at this show. I got to say, I don't think that No Dogs Allowed actually debuts at this show. It's just the first one we have, because it's by request. Oh, first known performance. Is right. it really? It's just worth noting mm. it on that. It's by request, so it's It is by request. I never thought about that. You're right. Yeah. But but we don't know. We don't know, yeah, we we don't know. when else. Maybe somebody hung out at practice. We, yeah, there's not even like yeah, a so faded cool. out date on fish.net. Uh, it's yeah. kind of one of those. Mm-hmm. It's lost history unless someone with actual access to the band at that point in time has some sort of documentation. But I think first and foremost, thank you so much for that breakdown, Meg. It's so great to get the context of the years we're going into this. I think you know the two points you made – that really st- uh, stick with me is like, you know, the, the March 2nd show and everything that happens on that, or sorry, March 12th, that show and everything that happens on that show. But also the fact that this show comes right on the cusp of them getting in the car and driving to Colorado. And who knows what discussions are happening amongst the band at this point in time as they're figuring out, should we go? Should we not? You've got to imagine this is quite an investment to drive across the country, play some gigs and come back. When you never really played outside of Vermont. So you've got to imagine around this point in time, they've been talking a lot about it and there's kind of this anticipation and who knows, maybe leaving a show like this, they, they had that sensation of like, all right, let's actually dive in. Let's do this. Like we've got people really responding to us. Um, this show is three sets. It's played in Underhill, Vermont. We are going to go through each set here. There's a lot to dive into. Um, so we're just going to kind of bounce around thematically kind of what our big takeaways here. But to give you a quick overview, set one begins with a jam. We do not know if this jam was the first p- performance of the show. It sounds like the music like fades in at this point in time. So you, you would think either they got on stage and were just kind of quickly jamming before they started playing or it comes out of another song. It sounds a little... McGruppy in some senses, like an evil McGrupp segment of jamming to me. To me, it sounds um, almost like a bit of a like a Bowie jam, but doesn't mm, go, doesn't mm. finish as a Bowie, doesn't start as Bowie. It just kind of reminds me of that kind of uh, tension of a, like the middle of a Bowie jam. That's interesting. Mm. That I can cool hear jam? that now going back to it. It's a really cool little jam. Um, it's a highlight. It's a huge highlight. Um, mm-hmm. Just quickly giving you a quick overview of the set list. We've got Jam, Colonel Forbin's Ascent and a Mockingbird, Mike Song, Hydrogen, Weak Pog, Lizards, On Your Way Down, ACDC Bag and Opossum, Walk Away, Bold as Love, No Dogs Allowed, The Sloth, and Fire. Huge, lengthy set. Um, getting back to that jam that starts it, how does this kick off the show for you guys from just like a sonic standpoint, just from a listening standpoint, how does this inform this overall set for you at all? It's, it's, it really sets you up and maybe almost like puts the bar almost too high 
uh, because mm. this jam is <laughs> really good. This, if you listen to anything from this show, if you were to listen to only one thing from the show, it should be this. You should probably listen to a few more things than that, though. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it continues at a pretty high point if you want to get into how well Trey plays Mockingbird, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, they're, they're, they hit the stage, whatever, at whatever point, whether it's, they started with a jam or this jam comes out of something and somebody just finally hit record on the tape, but either way they're, when the tape starts, they're on. Yeah. I wrote that down. Mm-hmm. It, my, my initial note was, uh, this, this sounds like an aggressive pursuit of thematic grooving. It sounds ahead of its time in terms of fish. It sounds like they're never just going to jam for the sake of jamming. They're going to jam when they're really feeling it. And, you, and to your point, Jonathan, no matter if this is right after they take the stage or 30 minutes into it, they are just playing with, with energy, but they're also playing with a pursuit of something. Um, I heard elements of the four five ninety eight cavern the funk jam that leads into cavern it's not like a direct birthing of it but like you just hear that like kind of chunky groove that the band will get into um i think as well to your point the mic song and the mockingbird you hear trey's guitar it's taken another step up from where it was in 87 and and every year we're getting this theme this theme of the band improving dramatically and really coming together in a big way um meg as you listen through this set where are you hearing the band really sound connected where are you hearing Trey really sound aggressive in a, in a monumental way? Yeah. This set's amazing. Cause it sounds like a second set to me. Yeah. You know, they sound like really like dialed in and like they've been listening to each other a lot or practicing. I think the mockingbird really stood out to me. It just, it really swells and to taps into some like deep emotion. This is when to me, I'm starting to hear the band really mature in terms of like the depth of emotion when they're playing. I mean, Trey's really starting to like lock into that stuff. And it's, it's the first show that we've listened to when every time a cover comes on, I'm like, no, just another original, please. Like, I just want to hear them playing their songs now because they're playing them better than they're playing the covers. And that stood out to me during this show. I think also the mics like the weird vocal jam with like the creepy laughing that, that intros mic is just really cool. And what's weird about the show is that there's this like unknown percussionist that's playing the whole time. And I'm just right. wanting to know who this is, but um, it sounds really good on mics. And this is like, you know, this is the first Mike's groove and it's obviously very intentional because at the end of week of pog, they've got, they're like quoting the Mino want no nice guy and it's just the way they sing that bit there. So good. Right? It's cool. And it's like that it showed to me that this was obviously meant to be together, all of this, these pieces. Sweet, and that's yeah. so fucking cool, you know? And Love that. Anybody yeah. who hasn't listened or look at that looked at this on fish.net, we should clarify it's a, it's really it's the first Mike's groove, like full total mm-hmm. mics, but they've played Mike's song before. This is the first hydrogen uh, excuse me, Wikipog. Uh, mm-hmm. on this show and uh it's ripping it's ripping. really good it just there's really good peaks it's it's an awesome and the, the hydrogen awesome. is pretty it's really pretty it cuts off at some point right yeah is that the one where it cuts off yeah it's there this is the one two three four five six the eighth hydrogen ever played uh, this is only the second to follow Mike's song. It followed it on August mm. 29th, 1987 at the ranch. Uh, another formative show. Um, previous versions, aside from three of them, aside from their first three, the last, so what, four, uh, went into Who Do We Do uh, portion of Fluffhead. So to your point, yeah. you know, this week of Pog ends with a quote of Mike's song. It kind of feels like they've decided the all these songs must be united. This is kind of we're starting to see the band, you know, elements of Fluffhead have been scattered around shows and they've informed other songs. We're going to hear No Dogs Allowed, which the final portion of that is going to be tacked onto a different song. But we're hearing the band start to figure out where do these songs all kind of match up? Where do these songs all kind of blend together? And that's something that will start to shape this transition to the next phase of their career where they figured out what works. And now it's, how do we make the show really work together? The songs are all coming together, all these complex pieces. Um, and this mic's the, the mic's groove, like everything 
is great about it. It sounds like a unified piece. It sounds in a lot of ways like we're, we're going to hear from this song, these three songs over the next five years till probably mid-1993 when they start, start to really screw with the structure again. Uh, I'm curious. I'm putting you guys on the spot here, though. Do you have any favorite Mike's grooves that stick out that you'd like to recommend? Uh, one of my all-time favorites is actually... 52889 <laughs> mm, mm. which this show reminds me a good bit of that show it's like that show is just takes what you have here the like the looseness and high energy and the fact that there's a bonfire and just elevates it you know it's not just a year later but this everything is just pumped up a little more uh, the banter is infinitely better um but I really like that Mike's group too. They they also start the Mike song off at like double speed for a second and mm. then fall apart. Last <laughs> that's so awesome. Fun. Meg, what about you? You got any favorites? No, I don't really. I mean, that's not how my brain works. I have to like, like I don't have like, I don't remember certain versions of songs unless I'm thinking about them. Mm. I always go with Hampton uh, 97. It's probably my favorite Mike song there's like this lengthy, like six minute intro to I am hydrogen. You could make the case that it's the only jammed out hydrogen. Uh, and then that goes into weak pog and then they follow it up. It's all opens the show. And then they follow it up with Harry hood. Cause they're like, if we didn't do you yeah. good enough there, here's one more. Here and we're now an hour into the show with four classics. Um, big, big moment. Uh, middle part of the set lizards on your way down. ACDC bag, possum, Walk away bold as love. Any big takeaways from these performances? It's kind of like a lot of odds and ends songs, but it really kind of works and it seems to fit the setting really well to me. I, I want to just shout out the kind of sprinkling of the Game Henge song. So as we mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, the the first like full-ish Game Henge happens back in, in March. And at this point, the songs are just popping up all over the sets and... Uh, I love it. I love listening to a lizards from this time period, for example, and I don't need a full game hedge performance to, to dig on that. So I really like that. Um, same for bag and whatnot. Um, I know Megan had some comment about one of these songs. Yeah. I really like on your way down. Like it, mm. Paige is just like getting after it. I can also imagine this going to like a super sick jam today. It's been played 22 times. Um, first time in June 88 and then it's been played six times. It was like early 3.0. And the last time was in 2011 at the gorge. I saw the one I before that at Meriwether. Yeah. I think this would be so fun to bring back. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I didn't realize it, but I've seen two versions of on your way down August 15th, 2010 at Alpine. And then that gorge show that you're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, that's six eleven. 2011 Meriwether show Jonathan's at that's the last uh, Albuquerque. So talking about like classic mm. rock songs that were played in early 3.0 that should come back. We got two of them yes. right there, there but yeah, go. I'm kind of shocked that we haven't heard on your way down since then, because the band loves playing in like a blues kind of sultry, you know, fashion and Paige's voice has only gotten better. Like he could just rage this, but yeah, it sounds so I good. don't know. I think this version is nice and heavy. I really dig it. Very. Yeah, this I love was... how at the end of his versions too, he's like, "Thank you, thank you very much." Thank <laughs> you. Like he says it like really intentionally, like every time he sings, it's so thank great. Thank you. One thing I've been like hearing as we've been going through these shows, we're, we're on our fifth show of this series. Um, you know, the classic rock covers have only gotten more powerful. Um, mm. I think you have a really strong point, Meg, that like the the originals are the best parts of this show, but it is really impressive to hear this. Bold is love, fire, good times, bad times later in the show. They're playing these songs in such a powerful way and they're trying to own them as much as they can without being imitative. But you really hear in this On Your Way Down how much this band projecting out a number of years is going to be a rock band. Like at this point, you can't really yeah. see it. They're just kind of like dorky guys who care a ton, who have like a fan base that's growing, that's building but they're going to become rock stars who are going to play. They're going to command tens of thousands of people. And hearing this, you really, really get a sense of like them in an arena show. It's just, it's something else. 
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, any other thoughts about this segment? I know there's one other song here from the first set we want to talk about. Now let's do it. All right. So we're going to talk here. Uh, we're going to do a deep dive over the next 30 minutes, however long it takes <laughs> us, um, about canines and whether or not they're allowed on subways. Uh, we all brought New York Post articles about canines on subways and what happens. <laughs> I just have to say, before we talk about this, because I live in New York, you know, you have to bring your dog in a bag on the subway. That's like the rule. And so people bring like the most enormous fucking bags you'll ever see, <laughs> like huge, huge bags. Out of a dog to, like, with like holes <laughs> punched out of an Ikea bag. Yeah. Exactly. Reba, Reba's like, I'm not getting on the fucking subway. I won't do <laughs> it. Don't worry. <laughs> but um, it's just hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah, this is... I, I guess I just didn't even think about, like, I don't know. I'm riding a subway every day, and the idea of having to put my dog in a bag is uh, is not something I was considering. But it seems like it's a it's an issue in New York and New York alone. New York alone, New York yeah, <laughs> yeah. New York is special. special so this is officially marked as the debut, but it was a requested song. So it is. We we don't know exactly if this song was debuted uh, in this performance. Um, this. Song in and of itself is very 1980s fish. This is uh, written by Trey and his mom. It has elements of Broadway in it. And it it's perplexing to hear how this song ends because it ends and fades into what we all know is the jam from Divided Sky. These two songs, in a lot of ways, they don't fit together, but they work in this setting. And that almost oh, makes similar. it fit. Yeah, this this is kind of like what I was talking about with like where Hydrogen and where Mike's Groove is at this point in time. We're still seeing certain songs that are not going to live together, existing together right now, whereas we're seeing other elements of Fish really come together. Jonathan, I know that you were really fascinated by this version and this song. What what are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, it's it's so cool. I mean, they sing No Dogs Allowed. No Dogs Allowed is basically an acapella number. I mean, there's not a lot yeah. going on there. Yeah. Um, musically, it's. I mean, it could be, you know, crafted with you know the barbershop vocals that they hadn't really learned to do yet and all of that stuff could be applied to that song but then yeah then it's well now we're playing divided sky and um it's beautiful it's well played and what i think it really tells us is that at some point in the very near later this year future during the pause in Divided Sky, they should start singing No Dogs Allowed. <laughs> it, it does get me thinking like... Tell me I'm wrong. You're not wrong. I don't want to... Hmm. It would be no, weird. Not every time. No, One don't time. mess with my Divided Sky. But they yeah, should do No Dogs out. Allowed in front of Divided Sky just once. That would be amazing. No, Drop it that in there. Is, it would completely slay and you would be glad they did. So you're One talking time. about like the part where like everything pauses, the audience is cheering. And if they step to the mic and rather than trade, play the note and then go into the solo. They start singing No Dogs Allowed and mm-hmm. then they stop. Just acapella yeah. or with the music. And then they stop and then they finish Divided Sky. Greatest crime against fish songs, that or the, <laughs> the <chant. laughs> enslave. The that, that's Sorry. worse Good than slave. That's worse than slave. We Good need to get. We need it's to terrible. get Benji Eisen on here to defend himself. My goodness! Look, uh, you know, I think it was that's a great like idea and a really cool thing moments. to do that one time. But the fact that we've had to live with it forever is it really bothers me because really? that moment when everybody's shouting "hood" used to have interesting sounds coming from the stage. No mm. more. Now they just mm. listen to us. This is how I feel about the woo. The band wants the woo. Yeah, I'm just. There used to be when when they would break down in a jam, 
like think about a 97 jam where they just break down and it's silence and then like the audience cheers and then they come back. That to me is more exciting than like, Hey, we're going to get to this vamp chords and ah, woo. Like, I don't want that. Stop. I don't want that. I don't really, I'm not here to defend the woo. I'm just saying the hood chants are trash. (laughs) They should sing no dogs allowed in the middle of divided sky one time. Just once. Once. But you know, if they do it once and it catches on, they're Mm -hmm. doing it the next show. It yeah, would kind of no, ruin no. That's exactly Skyler. when they wouldn't do it. It's just like expecting that the very next sample after the Baker's Dozen was going to have a big jam. <laughs> that was the joke. Mm. Um, do you guys have any abandoned sections of a song that you want to return? Because I, I would love to have No Dogs Allowed return. I just I have a couple others. I, I would like to see them break up uh, Fluffhead. That's how I feel. I want I mm. want to hear Claude just randomly yeah. sometime. Yeah, that would be so cool. Fourth Bundle song of a joy. show, just like what the fuck is going on right? Like people would be oh. so tripped out in the middle of a deep eighteen minutes of down with disease. Suddenly they just kind of roam into a Bundle of Joy. Yes, <sighs> please. That I want to return so to the Ass cool. Festival. I think that would be very nice. Yeah, bring that, that back nice. up there. About fifteen hundred shows. Um, <laughs> the sloth fire and this good rock and ending, good juxtaposition of original fish and cover fish. We move into Absolutely. set two, which reads the curtain with into Dave's energy guide and back in curtain with Wilson Terrapin, run like an antelope, satin doll, blue bossa, Lagrange alumni blues. Jimmy Page, Alumni Blues, and Peaches and Regalia. This show, this set, kicks off with what I would argue is probably the best version of the curtain we've ever played. It is a nuanced, but still slightly aggressive fish jam that leads in and out of Dave's Energy Guide. It challenges the inherent beauty of the curtain with in a way that doesn't take away from it. It just deepens the song in a lot of cases while I'm very much in favor of the band, not turning the curtain with into a jam vehicle because the song itself is just gorgeous and should remain Mm -hmm. and should, should hold what it is. I don't want that to become a jam vehicle. I do love hearing what the band can do with this song and what they showcase as possible with it. Megan, what was your takeaway on this, this performance here? Yeah, it's just a huge piece of improv for them, which I think is so fun. And the fact that they're starting with that, it's interesting that they're like opening these sets with like improv pieces and jams. Mm, like I just mm. feel like it's so different from how they're going to continue, start moving forward and how we think of now, right? Even I think it's just really great that they're kind of like just diving in right away and using some of these like highly composed pieces to get there. It's really cool. I like it a lot. I think it's cool. I don't know. I mean, I love the curtain with. I agree with you. It's like such a perfectly composed song, but I kind of think it's cool as, as a jam vehicle. Yeah. I, I love the curtain with, I think it is perfectly written, but uh, you know what else is perfectly written and sometimes has good jams. Harry hood. It's a good point. That's a very good point. There's possibilities if they're willing to explore them. Yeah. That's all just like, well, it's, Singing No Dogs Allowed in the Middle of Divided Sky. <laughs> <laughs> it's different than that, I have to say. Is it, though? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. it's wild, though, because so we have this version, and then we have the version from the Roma six days later in Telluride, Colorado, and then it will not be played again for 1,178 shows. Deer Creek, wow. uh, 712-2000. So, like, to your point, Jonathan – it's almost to me as though like this, like 1988 fish is the transition from kind of this loose jammy lack of structure towards the fish shows to very, very tight rock polished fish shows. It still had elements of exploration, be it in the change up the set list and the narration, blah, blah, blah. We're going to get into that as we cross into the nineties, but it's almost as though like this is an encapsulation of who fish could have been. And then this Mm -hmm. song goes away and the style of jamming goes away. Whereas as they were growing, they could have continued expanding their jamming. They kind of put that on the shelf after Instead, this era. They tighten up and we get things like split open and melt. Right, yeah. right. We get like this very deep dive into prog rock, this very tight, aggressive Super rock fast. band. Very fast. 
very like this is like zany approach to humor and to music that will somehow figure its way out in 1993 to reemerge as a jam band. Uh, but I don't know. You hear this almost like in a vacuum and it's like, this is a direction fish could have gone down. Uh, I love this version and I think it opens the set nicely from there. This set kind of feels a bit unhinged to me. I felt like, yeah. like throwing a fishman song in third song, antelope mid set, two jazz standards, some rock to close it out. Like it just, it felt it's a little the jazz bits that really the jazz bits are terrible. Which are I mean, they great. just suck the life out of the set. Oh no. Blue bosses. Yes, they do. Freaking red oh. set. Set and doll is cool, but a little unusual um, because it's not something they did all the time. But mm. if you pull those two cuts out, I don't think this, I, I think the set hangs together better. Um, I love Terrapin and I love that they played it right there. Um, Fishman sounds pretty good on it too. Um, I don't love Terrapin. I don't love. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Uh, in 1988, I too was listening to Sid Barrett. So I'm down. Fair. I have nits um, to pick with both of you while also agreeing with both of you, just in different ways. Uh, <laughs> I love the jazz here. I especially love Blue Bossa. This is only the second version. This to me is kind of my dream of what, like, I wish that they would have kept this element going into the 1990s because yeah i like the advocated jazz. It's bad we need replaced. more need more info on the johnny b fishman jazz ensemble yeah yeah this just tells me that i'm right i mean they sound amazing it's they a jam amazing here. the problem it's i find just, is i don't know where you would place it and i think that's that's, that's your point thing. like I think yeah, like, like maybe if you put in a first set, unless you're going to actually use it as jam vehicles, but blue bossa, it's only the second performance. They won't play it ever again, at least to this point. Um, it sounds like a looser, jazzier fish that I, I would love to have heard them continue exploring. I will agree with you though, Meg, this Terrapin, have they ever figured out where to put a Fishman song? Is it just me? And I'm just like a <laughs> yeah. cold hearted asshole who only likes type two jams. Podcaster credentials. Yeah. If you're going to come in here and say you don't like fish songs, Fishman, they named the band after the guy. He can sing any damn song he wants. I'm sorry, Lisa, that I don't agree with you. But um, Terrapin is a great song. It's a beautiful love song. And uh, I did hear a version that I liked of it. And it was when I saw them in London in 1996 and they were playing and it was it was like Shepherd's Bush Empire and he came out on the edge of the stage and played Terrapin and that was fucking cool. But this doesn't sound right. They're at a festival. Like they're outside. I, this doesn't. It's a festival. It's a party. I don't party. know. I, I don't Everybody's know. getting time. loose. There's a only time bonfire over there. They serenaded some Hendrix for the bonfire people. Like the only know. time this I saw fish really nail a Fishman song. And granted, I didn't see any early nineties fish uh, fish shows. So like I, I understand they played it a lot then and there were some great performances, but was when they came out for the encore Vegas, 18, 11 to 18, and they played love you and they did HYHU mm. love you HYHU. And it was awesome. It was in the encore. Everyone was high, you know, spot. on just like a real energy from an excellent you second guys, set. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I like, Love you. I great. Just, and that's great. You know what? Cracklin' Rosie's great. Purple Rain's great. Saw it in my first show. Called it in the parking lot on the way in. Purple Rain is fucking great. I saw always, that. Always want a Fishman song. There's not enough of them nowadays. Maybe not every show, but let's get them more frequently. Every show. Mm-mm. Once a weekend. Minimum. We're, we're, not, we're barely get, lucky to get one a tour. I know. 67 times. Now. This was the second ever Terrapin. The last time they played Terrapin was 12-4-2019 mm-hmm. uh, in Pittsburgh. That was after a 436-show gap. Wow. The last two performances were 8-11-2004 and 7-11-2000. The Moby Dick show, which I would argue that is one of the best-placed Fishman songs ever in an excellent show. Look, here's the beauty of this. We agree on some things. We disagree on some others. I think we can all agree this second set is a bit uneven and does not Mm -hmm. hold itself up to the overall standards of the festival second set. I will say that as we got to the back half of the second set, LaGrange alumni peaches is one hell of a way to end a show. Granted, it is kind of cosplaying as a blues rock and then prog rock band playing a little bit of too many covers here, but 
Okay. Really good energy. Uh, it feels fluid. And I just think it, it kind of showcases how they would be able to rein a crowd back in uh, in, in certain mm. moments. We'll, uh, we'll experiment, be it jamming, be it humor, whatever it may be. And now we're going to come back and we're going to rock your faces off. Any last thoughts that you guys have about the second set here? Fishman rules. <laughs> he does rule. I'm not saying he doesn't. I just uh-huh. don't like terrapin. The argument pro- portion of this of this set has concluded. All right, it's closed. <laughs> we are moving on. That's what I say to, to my students. Really that three, conversation is closed. <laughs> I'm going to get my key price out. I got some thoughts on this set as well. Both really good and also, you know, kind of what's going on here. Uh, set three, You Enjoy Myself, Contact, Harry Hood, Dinner in a Movie, Slave to the Traffic Light, The Ballad of Curtis Lowe, and Good Times, Bad Times. As far as we know, that that ends the show. Trey and Paige say goodbye to the audience, but we don't hear them come out for an encore. So as far as we all know, the set ends after three, three sets. Um, Beginning with and including three of the biggest fish songs of all time. It feels like a statement in a lot of cases. You Enjoy Myself kicks it off. This is the, uh, oh, I wanted to note, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes and they're confusing me. So in 1987, by the end of 1987, Fish had played You Enjoy Myself 17 times. So from its debut, to the end of 1987, 17 times. Decent amount, figuring the song out, mm-hmm. figuring out what works. To this point in 1988, they've already played it 20 times. It's clear that this is the year that they realize how important this song is, how revolutionary this song is, how much of a crowd pleaser this song is. And this is really the year, 1988, where You Enjoy Myself starts to become the fish song. And part of that, the jam is becoming a little bit more standardized. It's not, there's not really a surprising moment. It's just kind of, here's the end of the uh, uh, trampoline segment. And then here's five minutes of just like aggressive peak funk rock jamming before we go into a vocal jam. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because they're just, we're seeing again, that transition from, can we be a band to, can we be a touring band to now, okay, we are becoming a rock band and we're polishing things up. And these songs have real, uh, power in terms of how we deliver them to the audience. What did you guys think of this overall EM? And I guess just diving into the set as a whole. It's a good set. I think it's, um, you know, maybe they dropped the big one right at the beginning and everything else just kind of is pretty good that follows. But I think I, I really like it. I like that you enjoy myself. Um, contact is fine. Harry hood isn't the Harry hood cut. seems like, um, there's a lot of things that get cut. We'll blame <laughs> analog tapes. Um, but, uh, seems like the taper was doing some other extra, yeah, maybe he was having a good time and was like, Oh, party. Yeah. shit. Um, and, uh, nobody else is going to listen. It's just me and my buddies. And then we were talking about the podcast. <laughs> right. I want to shout out the slave actually. I think it's my highlight yes. from the set, uh, mm-hmm. with the horn. And uh, I love it. Slave with a horn. Uh, yes, anytime. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I love the Yem. I love Paige in this jam. Like he's on like the organ or whatever, the organ setting on his keyboard. And he just sounds amazing. He's just really great. Has such a great peak, this Yem. It's over 20 minutes long. And the vocal jam isn't terrible. And it kind of comes to like a natural sounding end. It's not that bad. I think this is a great Yem. I thought the hood was a highlight for me. Again, when they like tap into that emotion and you feel beyond their silliness, um, especially after a song like Contact. This is just, again, like you're hearing the depth of Trey's musical ideas and it's really, I think it's great. And Slave is great. Yeah, gorgeous. It's my notes. It's also really funny. At the end of dinner in a movie, Trey's like, all right, everybody put your hands together right now. And nobody does anything. Like It's like crickets. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, okay, still working on that, like, crowd management. It's funny. But yeah, it's it's okay. The hard it's thing not, to do. Yeah, it's hard, right? You got to try it. You got to see what works. Yeah. I have the exact same highlights as you guys. Um, I just want to note, I have a couple critiques. I think that where Contact, Dinner Movie, and even Curtis Lower placed, I feel like those would serve us better in a second set rather than here it just it just kind of 
interrupts the flow for my ears of like you enjoy myself ends and then we have this kind of silly song and then Harry Hood is very emotional and then we have this silly song and then Slave of the Traffic Light very emotional Curtis Lowe's good it's just kind of strange in that spot um, before Good Times Bad Times closes this out I don't know it's like a small nit to pick it, it feels like they're still figuring out the flow of a set in a lot of cases. And that's something Definitely. that until we even get to like 1994, 95 and into 97, it's going to be kind of a ongoing thing that they're working out is like how to make a set really flow in a narrative way. Um, the Harry hood is jam charted, which is really cool to see. It's a great version. Awesome ending to it. This is the first performance since March 11th, 1988, a 42 show gap, pretty significant gap at that point in fish history. So clear that they were like working through elements of the beginning of the song uh, and kind of seems like it was intentionally shelved because as we noted in 86 and 87, there were really powerful versions we listened to. Um, but yeah, to your point, Meg, like I, you get hearing this and then hearing slave, why they're playing these songs and why they will play these songs for the remainder of their career so close to the conclusion of a show. Because when you have it in the rotation and you have the ability to throw these songs out there, they have such an emotional pull that whatever came first, if it was brilliant, if it wasn't the best fish show, whatever it is, this song has a catharsis and an emotional release that will leave any fan, like a dedicated fan has been going to see them for decades total noobs walking out of their you know first fifth show and just being like blown away by what the band can do these are songs that are really going to carry them there so uh, i took a lot away from both of those and having the socks on on slave man just unbelievable so, so cool. nice I, I know you said the argument part of the podcast is over that was I'd just like set to, two open to I'd like argue to speak as well. to the following the big heavy songs Please. with lighter material and yeah. i think that it is uh you know it's for the band too uh sometimes you're gonna break up that tension i mean you as a listener now want to hear you enjoy myself harry hood slave back to back to back sure, but sure. they as a band in 1988 probably wanted to break it up a little and they were probably trying to also engage what's left of the crowd i suspect you know this is set three yeah. of a outdoor party People are kind of like, uh, oh, wait, they're going on again? Yeah, <laughs> and people, people have wandered off. Others have maybe even left. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, it's late, so they're pulling out the big guns, but they're also, you know, having fun with it. I think that's a fair point. I mm -hmm. think the like, yeah, I think that's a totally fair point. It's it's the interesting dichotomy of listening to this band versus actually envisioning yourself as this band and the, and, and the decisions that they're making in the moment. And one thing that will always kind of define fish is, you know, there are these sets that seem to flow with precision, almost as though it was thought about over months in the same way that like an album is composed, but it's being done on the fly. And that, that is like, for me, the peak of fish, but I think there's also this element of the band that likes to throw something out there that may not seem like it works in the moment and it ends up actually working. And sometimes that happens and it's absolutely brilliant. But I think your point of like them in that moment of a live show, trying to keep the audience, that's why you have something like dinner and movie where you've got the guy who heard it at Nectar's two months ago. And it's like, I know this song and sings right. along and the crowd energy comes back. Um, Plus, so, uh, you know, fish is a band that does jokes. So Facts. This gonna is true. To happen. That's yeah. gonna you're gonna have to deal with the humorous side of them one way or another. You can laugh at it, or you can critique it. I don't know. Some of us found humor in criticism from Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Uh, <laughs> you know that's just where it is. Um, so I have one question about the show before we break here for the episode. Um, this is not their first festival gig. This has festival in the title. Pete's fabulous fish fest. The year prior, they played Ian's Farm on August 21st, 1987, and The Ranch on August 29th, 1987. Both shows were three sets. Both shows had the vibe of a festival show. So this is kind of in that vein, and they're going to play a few more of these before kind of breaking from that model until the Clifford Ball in 1996. Um, I'm curious for you guys, Jonathan, starting with you, how does this inform for you the way that the band is going to approach festivals in the future I, I i'm not sure that it does i think this is just this is as much 
the band in a a three night three setter at Nectar's without you know the roof. You know, the, mm, I, I really feel like it's that it, or the kind of constriction of being in somebody else's club. You know, they're probably allowed to cut loose um, a little more, but I, I'm not sure that it's really, you know, the, the thing they, they threw back to. I think when they decided to do the Clifford Ball, I think they were probably looking more at things like, you know, the shows at Arrowhead and at Amy's Farm. Mm, and mm. those are the things that really drove it because they produce those shows here. They're like, somebody's throwing a party that they come out. Now I, I haven't looked if there's, I don't know if there's pictures from, from this event or anything, or if there's a, you know, was even a stage, but for all we know, they're playing on a patio. Um, but I'm, 90% I, yeah, I'm, sure I'm not that entirely. I haven't convinced. seen anything. Mm-mm. Not that I know, but yeah, I mean, I think sure there's some video of this. I didn't see any, but there might be out there. Yeah, I mean, I think to to your point, Jonathan, I think that like they did the Clifford Ball because they wanted to cultivate the entire experience and they wanted to serve a lot of fans at one point and create a world for them. And I think this is just too early for that. Yeah, I think you guys are right in that sense that like, maybe there's not. Um, I think you guys are right in that sense that like it is a reflection more of where they were at that point in time versus where they were going. I guess what I hear that kind of made me think about this is like huge, huge songs in really dynamic spots. You know, you've got Forbin's Mockingbird opening and then right into a Mike's groove and then right into lizards um, curtain with big jam opening the second set third set, having Yem, Harry Hood, Slave to the Traffic Light, it feels in a sense of how they would structure elements of their festival sets going forward where they're going to play big songs in big moments and they're going to lead those songs into jam, like in, into significant jams that we consider and we listen to years later. But that's that's looking at it with you know significant hindsight. In true, 1988, true, totally. these, aren't the, these aren't like the big songs. These are the songs. That's a really so good point. This is, this is it. This is it. They got a so catalog of what a hundred. They could songs have played Fluffhead, maybe, but you know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's all there is. So, is what else are they going to open with? Mustang. Sally. Well, yeah. I don't think that <laughs> you would want to have them do that. Okay, <laughs> but <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just – when I hear this, what your point about the looseness aspect, that this is not within a club. This is not happening at night. This is happening uh, – it feels like it sounds like midday um, as like a party is happening. You just get a sense of like the band with less time to worry about like putting a show together and more time to kind of freely and loosely experiment, which is informed in some cases by the jam that opens up the show as well as the curtain width. But – you're absolutely right. We are looking at this with some element of hindsight, trying to track where this band is going to go. We do know that like all of us, they're going to put one foot in front of the other. A new day will come. The sun sets and the sun rises. And very soon, as soon as next Monday, we will find ourselves in 1989, where we are going to hear this band continue to evolve, continue to develop. And we are going to track them over the course of the next 35 years at this point in time to get to the present day. So thank you all for joining us here as we talked about 72388 tracking fish 40 for 40. Mag, Jonathan, thank you guys as well for the spirited discussion even when we were at each other's throats. Hey, if anybody wants to start a fish podcast where we like fishman songs and jokes, let me know. <laughs> um, be careful what you ask for, everyone. Jonathan. They're going to be knocking down your door. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, guys. We will see you here next week. Same time, same place. Be good to each other out there, except when Fishman is playing a song. So.
I'm Barbara Ann Wild, and we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros, covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles, all while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh. 